So Sean came to me, he said, listen, the guys in Boston, this is, he always referred to them, uh, want a scary movie, you want to write something scary? And uh, I said, no, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> and he says, well, you were raised as a fundamentalist, just pull all the, all the skeletons out of your closet, and sort of laughed at me. So I literally did that. I went to a, a friend's place out in Long Island for, I think, Labor Day weekend, something like that. I sat in a room and wrote the first script in two days. Um, and now this that was last off and left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a podcast. Only a podcast. <laughs> only a podcast. Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of Craven Craven on FThisMovie.com. My name is Patrick Bromley. I am joined for this amazing project that we are about to embark on by the managing editor of DailyDead.com, the author of... Monster Squad, soon to be a multi-volume set, and the star of In Search of Darkness, the ultimate <laughs> 80s horror documentary, Heather Wixon. Hi, Heather. Hey there. Um, wow, that's so, like, in, like not right at all. Um, I mean, I, there's no way I'm a star of anything when it has Elvira and Barbara Crampton, so just putting that out there. But you're, you're up there with them, and that, to me, makes you a star. I guess, I guess maybe, maybe in some weird twisted little way, perhaps sort of, um, but not really. You're featured so. in a documentary alongside Elvira and Barbara Crampton. Like, That's listen true. to that, listen to that sentence. Okay. Yes. Yes. Eight, eight year old me is like, what the hell? Um, so yes, I'll take it. <laughs> Good. Good. I, I liked your intro though. I was trying not to giggle over it cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to mess you up. <laughs> no. I was, I was, I was I'm, giggling on the inside. I'm easily thrown off. Um, so Heather, this was, this is your brainchild. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you have in mind for this uh, project going forward? Uh, yeah, basically, I think the premise is pretty pretty simple. It's it's uh, Wes Craven, all Craven all the time. Um, yeah, I it's it's interesting because like you know I there's there's certain deaths that you know of people that I grew up um, admiring that have hit me harder than others um, and. The two biggest, you know, I would say the first one is Prince. Um, and the second one is Wes Craven. Like, I just, I still get really sad that he's no longer here. And I think about all of the contributions that he has made, um, you know, basically through five decades of horror. Because of 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and we got 2010s, too. Um, and so I just thought, like, hey, wouldn't it be fun just to kind of start going through all of his various genre outputs, genre. Um, <laughs> Trebek and, style. Yeah, yes, genre. Um, so I just thought it'd be kind of fun. And I was like, who better to go through the the, the Wes Craven, you know, filmography uh, than my horror BFF? 
That's right. We are so, Horror BFFs. Yeah. Those of you listening for the first we time. We are Horror BFFs. We host a show, uh, a Corpse Club on DailyDead.com called Horror BFFs. So you should go listen to that. Wes Craven, oddly enough, is not, I wouldn't consider him like one of my guys, even though I love Wes Craven and I love almost every single one of his movies. He's not like one of my guys, but I know that he's one of yours. Like I will always associate Wes Craven with you. Um, he directed, yeah, of, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to say one of my goals has been over the years. I've been, you know, collecting one sheets and stuff like that. And my ultimate goal is whenever we get to actually move into like a place and I get my own office, um, is that I'm going to have a West Craven office. Cause I've been collecting, I have people under the stairs. Uh, I think I have scream one, two and three. I don't have four uh, surprisingly enough. Um, I've got, I've got a nightmare. I've got a new nightmare. I've got a serpent of the rainbow. Um, so yeah, it's like I guess my goal is to basically turn my office into if if I was just hanging out in Wes Craven's office, basically. I do have a signed picture of Wes Craven hanging in my office, but that was a gift from somebody. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's all Toby Hooper, and then a signed picture of Wes Craven. <laughs> um, By the way, we were watching something the other night, and uh, Dwight uh, H. Little was credited, and both Brian and I were like, "That's Patrick's boy." Nice. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really excited for you. I'm... So we were, we're always representing for you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Wes Craven directed my favorite horror movie of all time, which is A Nightmare on Elm Street, and is responsible really for our friendship because in like sixth grade, we bonded over Freddy Krueger and A Nightmare on Elm Street thanks to Wes Craven. That's very true. Actually, I was in fifth grade. You were in sixth because you're older. You'll don't, never don't, don't let me, me forget it. No, I don't don't I don't need another year added on yet. I'm, you know, I'm still dealing with the years that I've got. Um, but yeah, very true. Um, a, a mutual friend of ours, because um, she is the same age as you, was basically went off to junior high and left me in grade school all on my lonesome. And then came home one day and she was like, hey, I met this kid who really likes Nightmare on Elm Street. You should talk to him. And then gave me your phone number. <laughs> and I was like, Okay. Um, and then basically, like, I I think I called, like, the next day. And I was like, so you like Nightmare on Elm Street? And you're like, you like Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think that was just it. And here we are, like, yeah. decades later. Still talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. Well, not today. Although technically not today. <laughs> yeah. Today we're going we're gonna to start at the beginning, uh, which I jokingly texted to you, like, wait, do we need to start with Wes Craven's porn? Uh, to which, which you responded, I, I don't know where I would find it. And truth be told, I don't either. I have no idea. I just sure, didn't know if we needed sure. to. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. not yeah, counting I, I, it's like my I'm, top yeah, drawer. I'm such a square. Yeah, I'm I'm such a squ- square peg where I'm just like, do how would I would I Google that? Like Wes Craven porn? Like, I don't know, like how that works. I always joke because I get like the emails where they're like, oh, we caught you doing things on your computer watching videos and I was like oh you are barking up the wrong tree I don't have time for that I barely have time to do my work <laughs> it's like I don't have time to scour the, the internet for porn are you kidding me I wish um but yeah I was like I, I was like I don't I don't even know I was like suddenly I turned into like a, a like an old like a Baptist lady where I was like oh my <laughs> I was like Wes Craven's porn uh, filmography I don't even know my my lord my stars uh so yeah so I'm I'm a I'm a total square 
Well, that was some research I was not willing to do. Uh, I'm sure we could find it if we wanted to. I'm sure there are people that know where to find it, but what would we say? You know, like we saw porn directed by Wes Craven. (laughs) It looked like porn from the seventies. I don't know what else we would say about it. So we thought we would start with his first proper film, which is last house on the left. Uh, from 1972, produced by Sean S. Cunningham, who would, of course, go on to give us the Friday the 13th series, produce the House series, which I know you're a big fan of, particularly House 2. Got to give that a shout-out for you. Um, So we're going to talk about Last House on the Left for this debut episode, and it's going to be unpleasant, because this is an unpleasant movie. Yeah, I uh, before we started, I mentioned to you, like, I have not watched this movie since high school. Um, So the funny story is, is that when me and my ex-husband, when we first started dating my senior or our senior year, because we're both the same age, um, you know, he knew I was in a horror. And I think he was trying to, like, you know, hang out. We were like, oh, let's go rent some weird stuff at the video store. So, like, one night we were like, oh, I've never seen Last House on the Left. And I was like, let's watch it. Um, and it was funny cause like his parents are upstairs, we're sitting on the couch and you know, like in high school, like sometimes like you make out during movies or whatever. Like, I think we both sat there like on the opposite ends of the couch, just like <laughs> blankly staring ahead. And I, I literally remember like at the end of the night, I looked and I was like, okay, well I'm going to go home now. <laughs> it's like, I think I just walked out, got in my car and drove home. I was like, whew. And then we didn't learn our lesson because a few weeks later we rented, I spit on your grave. So obviously we learned nothing from, from that. Yeah. We were apparently masochists. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, I was really insanely repulsed by this movie. Um, the first time I saw it, seeing it, watching it again this week. Yes. I'm still, it's, it's, it's horribly uncomfortable to watch. Um, but I, I think I found a little bit of its merits. Um, I, I, I found more to appreciate about it now. Um, so I, I'm kind of grateful for the rewatch in that respect, um, because I, it's one of those things where, like, when I talk about Wes's, like, you know, his career, this is one of the movies I always just fail to mention. Um, but I think it does have, I don't want to say redeeming qualities, but it has value, I think. Yeah, I actually think it's a movie with a lot of merits. And I think one of its strongest merits is it feels like a Wes Craven movie. It doesn't feel like the Wes Craven that would become kind of popular in the 1980s, the Wes Craven we typically think of, the guy who brought us Freddy Krueger. But I can watch it and say, yeah, I I can see where that came from, the same guy. And that's not necessarily true of a lot of filmmakers. You know, they make their first movie and they haven't found their voice yet. And I think Wes Craven is a guy who very early on knew that he wanted to use the horror genre to say some things and to make some points and to touch nerves that we as an audience are not used to having touched uh, and that we maybe don't like being touched. And he found more commercial ways to do it, I think, with something like A Nightmare on Elm Street, which obviously we'll get to a few episodes from now. Um, But part of the, you know, that movie's kind of primal power is the, you know, that it talks about dreams in a way that movies hadn't before and that it talks about our fears, our vulnerability being asleep. 
Um, and I think Last House on the Left has that same kind of primal power stripped away of its commercial aspects. Um, he didn't find a boogeyman, you know, to channel some of this stuff. So it's just humans being as awful to one another as they can possibly be, and then some. And it makes it really hard to watch, but it feels still to me like a Wes Craven movie. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's interesting, too, watching it, because, um, again, like I said, it's been 20-some <laughs> years uh, <laughs> since I've watched it, because uh, I'm old. Um, but what I really thought was interesting is that there are things in this movie where, you know, and we talked about this because I wrote the piece um, for F this movie about, like, how, you know, basically Wes was sort of this master of reinvention where he would take these things in his movies and then ultimately re-explore them for like later on in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, with last house and left, like you, there are things in this movie that we ultimately see um, in movies further down in his career. Um, for example, I, I think just the concept of Mary's death and her being so close to home I, you know, obviously the opening of the original Scream, you know, where you have poor Casey and she's reaching to her parents, you know, as she's getting dragged off and about to be killed. I, for me, I, I felt like there was like some really interesting sort of connective tissue between those two ideas. Yeah. Um, which, again, watching Scream, like, because it had been so long, I didn't didn't really dawn on me at the time. So I apologize for not catching that sooner, especially when it comes to Scream. <laughs> um, and then. I also enjoyed the fact that the the dad, you know, later on in the movie, you know, he's setting up all these booby traps and the booby trap montage in Nightmare and the original Nightmare on Elm Street is like one of my favorite things. And I was like, well, OK, all right. I see this now. Um, and I think that's really interesting when a director can take these things from different eras of their career and sort of explore them again, but do them in a very different way. You know, the like the dad doing the booby traps is very sort of like it's not well thought out. It's just okay. What do we have in the house? How am I going to do this? Um, where Nancy, Nancy was preparing. Like she had a book, she was ready. Um, and I just think it's really interesting. Again, when you think of like last the concept of last house on the left versus the opening of Scream, um, and then thinking about like the you know sort of the connections between this and Nightmare, you know. What are the, I, I'm trying to think of other directors who have sort of tried to do that, and I can't really think of any others. Who have like tri- maybe Toby Hooper, like with sort of his ex- exploration in original Texas Chainsaw versus what he does in Texas Chainsaw Two. Right. But right. I don't even think I just I think Texas Chainsaw Two is like his response to the mis like the misinterpretation of what the original Texas Chainsaw was about. Yeah. Almost like Dante with Gremlins and Gremlins Two as well. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, Wes Craven, I, this is not original to me, but he's like the only kind of master of horror who helped define the genre three decades in a row. You know, he does it with Last House on the Left in the 70s, he does it with Nightmare in the 80s, and then he does it in with Scream in the 90s. There's nobody else really that you can point to that has had that kind of impact on horror um and you know last house on the left is part of a larger movement of horror in the 1970s that i don't think 
Wes Craven's not the only one working in that because, as you mentioned, you just talked about Toby Hooper. Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes out around the same time. It comes out a year later, but it's definitely working in that same kind of 70s horror space, um, which is very much a response to Vietnam, right? And the, yes. the horror of violence, basically, and what real violence does to people and the impact that it has on people and its ability to our reaction to it, you know, its ability to drive us mad, um, drive us to savagery in the case of last house on the left. Um, so he's not the only one doing this kind of horror in the 1970s, but he's certainly one of the first doing this kind of horror in the seventies. And then he kind of does it again, which we'll get to in the next episode when we do the Hills have eyes, you know, he's sort of revisiting a lot of these same themes. So I think, he makes a much larger footprint with that kind of brutal 70s horror uh, than any other filmmaker. And then that horror well, kind of... Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, I was going to say, well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned you know, that because I think there was, like, coming out of the Vietnam War, you know, we had sort of this... Again, this is a little bit before both of our times. Um, but I think there was sort of this false sense of security here in the United States in terms of, you know, how safe we were and how you know, the, the violence and the horror of, of that war was played out away from us. Um, and I think it's interesting that in this film and in Hills Have Eyes, like, Craven brings it to us. He to- he shows us we're not safe. There there are no boundaries. There is there is potential danger lurking anywhere. Um, and I think in, in some ways, I mean, I don't know what, what, what necessarily the response from moviegoers at the time were, but I mean, I think for me, it would be a huge wake-up call um, especially because of how gritty and how realistic this movie feels uh, in particular. Well, I don't want to speak too much to his biography, um, but I know he grew up not being allowed to watch movies, I believe. And yeah, so he was, it was very concerned because he went to Wheaton College, if I'm not mistaken, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he had been a professor and got into filmmaking again, as we mentioned, kind of on the porn side. And then uh, he and Sean Cunningham were like, well, let's make a horror movie. Uh, those seem to be profitable. And it's almost like he didn't know what you couldn't do in a movie. And so Last House on the Left crosses all these lines because Wes Craven didn't know any better. He wasn't confined by kind of the rules of what you could show in a movie or how far you could take an audience. Um, And so we get these really transgressive moments like where Krug uh, forces the girl to piss her pants or I think the most transgressive moment in the movie um, and, and Wes Craven, I think, in interviews has even talked about the fact that audiences really pushed back against him for this. Um, after Phyllis's murder, the camera lingers on them for a really long time, and they all look really kind of ashamed at and disgusted at what they've done. And yeah. He said audiences really didn't like that because in that moment you're almost made to feel that they're made to feel human. And 
we don't want to feel that way because we just saw them do this horrible thing. We've seen them do nothing but horrible things, terrorize these girls, uh, assault these girls, in this case, murder Phyllis. We don't want to believe that they have any kind of humanity. And yet he gives them this humanity in this moment. And I, I can't think of another filmmaker who would have taken the time out for that moment. To me, it's the best, most important moment in the entire movie. Um, and I can't think of anybody else who would have done it. And in some ways, I think it's almost because, again, he didn't necessarily know any better. He didn't know that, like, no other filmmaker would do this because he just didn't have the same vocabulary having grown up not seeing any movies. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, there, There is a lot of power to that moment um, in particular. And I think, you know, also you kind of, you have this sort of s- sympathy that comes out because of Junior as well. Um, because this, this poor kid obviously is dealing with issues beyond the fact that he has a monster for a father and absolutely abhors everything that's happening, but is helpless to do anything. Um, and I think for me, like rewatching it, um, I think my favorite, I don't want to say favorite performances. I mean, I think they're all really good for different reasons. Um, but I think I was really sad for junior this time watching it around where I think the first time I watched, it, I was just like, Oh, well he's as complicit as the rest of them. And he, they're not innocent in any of it because he brings the girls in because you know, that's, that's his function in that group. Um, but I felt, I felt bad for him this time because he's so, he's so consumed by his own addiction that he's, he's, he's almost like a, a shell of a human being. Yeah. You know, there's, I don't think there's anything that's really driving him other than just guttural instinct. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, but yeah, that, that scene, especially cause like, um, I, I feel like the version I watched, cause I, I mentioned to you, I, I stream this off of, um, popcorn flicks cause they have it right now for anybody listening who hasn't watched it in a while. Maybe is curious. <laughs> I feel like um, the I feel like the version that I saw was not the same as I saw as a kid or saw back when I was in high school. It felt like some stuff, some of the violence might have been removed because I remember the the rape scene with Mary. I, I mean, when I the first time I, that felt like it was like an hour long, honestly, um, but it seemed a little less this time. So I don't know if it's if like certain streaming services soften explicit content like that. I don't really know. Um, but I will, maybe that's why it was a little easier to take this time. Um, but there wasn't like, cause I know like he, he like, doesn't he like carve something into her like before she goes into the lake? Um, I'm not remembering that. But that doesn't mean that it didn't okay. happen. <laughs> there okay. are multiple Maybe. versions of the movie, you know. Um, okay, so yeah, because I was like, because I remember there, the scenes being far more drawn out than the version I just saw. Um, but I'm actually okay with that. I'm not looking for the extra long version of this movie, to be very honest. Um, I, I think actually, I think the less is more approach actually works a little bit better. Um, Cause I just, I just remembered like there's things like I swear were in my memory and I'm like, I wasn't seeing them this time. And so that kind of threw me off. Um, but I do remember that, that shot of them where they're standing like in this, like the cemetery and it just, it felt inexplicably long compared to everything else. Yeah. And, you know, and for me, like you almost kind of hold your breath 
because you're you're waiting for like something, and yet all your like ultimately you're just left with these human beings who are just sort of contemplating these horrible things that they've just done. Right. Um. Yeah. So it's that to me, but I I do feel like Junior ends up being sort of the most sympathetic. I mean, even if you can sympathize with them, but like that kid just wasn't in control. Right. There, there are multiple cuts I know because there's the Arrow Blu-ray that I watched this on has the uncut version as sort of the main feature, and then there's a second disc that has an R-rated cut, and then a Krug and Company cut. And the major difference in the Krug and Company cut is when Marie's parents find her, they go out and find her in the woods, and she's still alive, mm-hmm. and talks to them before dying, um, which is. A little bit more in keeping with, I think, the 2009 remake, which I'm assuming we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, that's kind of what that reminded you me You know what's interesting? See, that's really interesting because that's what I saw. And I thought, So like, what I, the I hell remember, is streaming? That's so fascinating. They, so they must have that version on Popcorn Flicks because I remember, because like she kind of mumbles something to them. Yeah, yeah. And then she's like, and then her dad goes, oh, she's gone. Right. Like she kind of mum- and I, I thought I was like seeing things because I was like, wait, she's supposed to be dead, because that's what I remember. Like they find her and she's de- already dead. Right. So this must this must have been, that's got to be the the, the Krugen Company cut then. So that's really interesting because like I thought I was just losing my mind, you know, which isn't t- entirely impossible these days. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it's like because I seriously was like I paused it for a second. I was like, wait, did she just talk? And then I went back and I was like, oh, she did. I was like, that's really strange because I didn't remember that from the first time I ever watched it. Yeah. So good to know. I'm glad. You, I'm glad you're up on all these different versions because I wouldn't. I wouldn't have known. Yeah, it was really fun deep diving into this movie this week. <laughs> it was Ooh, really over and over and over again. So, and I, I really punished myself because I also checked out two other movies that are sort of related to this, um, and they exist on total opposite ends of the spectrum. On one end, I watched Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring, which provides the inspiration for Last House on the Left. It's the original black and white Swedish film based on an old folktale starring Max von Sydow. Uh, And it is essentially this story that this daughter goes out into the woods. Some strangers come across her. They murder her. They come to stay at the parents' house. The parents discover that they are the ones who killed their daughter and they take their revenge. Um... And it's as highbrow and artistic and movie snobby as you can get, right? A Bergman movie is going to be all those things. It's great. I'm not saying it's it's a great movie. Uh, it's beautifully shot and acted, and it's it's a great movie. But it's like as highbrow as you can get, right? When you when you joke about film snobs, you're joking about Bergman movies, basically. Um, <laughs> right. All the way on the other end of the spectrum. I watched a movie called Chaos. And Chaos is essentially a remake of Last House on the Left that doesn't admit to being a remake of Last House on the Left. It is directed by a former professional wrestler by the name of David the Demon DeFalco. Are you aware of this person? I, uh, I feel like 
No. Okay. I no, didn't know I if either either through your relationship with wrestling or even just through your relationship with, you know, horror movies and stuff, if you've come across David the Demon DeFalco. He now runs Dark Force DVD, which is a boutique DVD label that gets into all sorts of uh, horse, oh, horse shit. Heard. Yeah. <laughs> there. And he still, he runs it like he's, a, you know, a wrestling promoter. He's, he's ridiculous. So he made this movie and the credit says, based on an original idea by David the Demon DeFalco. And oh, is he the guy who did the backlot murders? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. No. Boy, a lot of people like to just to claim that they were a professional wrestler, but okay. <laughs> like anyway, that's I don't I don't need the hate mail. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I don't want to get that. I will claim that I was a professional wrestler as well because I once <laughs> sat at the Allstate arena where wrestling was going on. Um, so nice. Yeah. Right. That makes me, I, I attended a survivor series. Therefore I am a professional wrestler. Um, chaos is about as shitty and mean spirited a movie as I've ever seen. It's the closest I've ever come to just turning a movie off. Um, because it's all of the bleakness and nihilism and violence and horrible shit. It goes so much further than Last House on the Left, but without making a point at all. I mean, I'm sure the filmmakers would argue it's making a point. I'm sure they would say, we're showing how ugly the world can be. Uh, great job. You really did that. You showed how ugly you can be as filmmakers. Um, because the film is just trash, just nihilistic, disgusting, mean-spirited Holy trash. shit. Holy shit. I just had a literally literally a flashback. Um oh my god. So they DeFalco and um Sage Stallone were at Flashback Weekend that weekend, I think, to talk about this movie. Okay. Yes, they actually showed it at Flashback Weekend in 2005. Oh, my, oh my gosh. Oh, my God. I just remember that because they were there that weekend. Whoa. I just, that was literally, no pun intended, a total flashback to me. <laughs> um, and I remember people were really angry coming out of that movie. I didn't go see it. It's it's real, real bad. And But I was like, well, I should watch it because I know it's this sort of unofficial remake of Last House on the Left. And... It follows it almost beat for beat, except again, some additional ugly misogyny and violence. Um, and then it changes the ending to completely undermine Wes Craven's original point. And I have heard that Sage Stallone tried to get out of it, but was sort of contractually required to appear. He's basically playing the junior role. Um, mm. And Kevin Gage, who some of you may know from Heat, or from uh, D. Snyder's Strangeland, more famously. Oh, I, yeah, I actually know Kevin Gage. Okay, well, he's the lead. He's he, chaos. He's Krug, basically. Yeah, he used to work. Yeah, he. Oh gosh, yeah, he used to work with uh, when I used to work with Rob Hall. He did um, laid to rest with him, and then he also was in uh, Fear Clinic. Okay. He's a yes, terrifying. That's human sad being. for him. Yeah. He is, he, but he's a sweetheart. So that's. I'm sad that he was involved with this movie. That's that's awful. 
It's a terrible movie. And Last House on the Left sits comfortably in the middle. And that is, I think, okay. a testament to Wes Craven's skill that the movie functions as both high art and low art. That it is both, it has these sort of highbrow aspirations in terms of saying something about violence and our response to violence. Um, you know, I know Wes Craven took a very sort of documentarian approach to the film. That was his mantra going into it was, I want to approach this like a documentary. And the thing about documentary films is they don't look away. Yeah. And so he didn't want to flinch from the ugliness. Um, and so it has all these highbrow aspirations, but then it's also kind of ineptly made at times because of his experience. Uh, because he and Sean Cunningham didn't really know what they were doing. It has so many rough edges and weird tonal shifts and a score that at times is at odds with what is happening oh on gosh. screen and all the stuff with the cops. It's, I was really looking for like Keystone cops to come running through it. Absolutely. Points, it's just like, do, 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 and you're like, whoa, this <laughs> is, and I'm like, sure. You want to like have that juxtaposition of having happy music during horrible things. It's like, ah, I don't think this was, you know, I think there was a different way to do that. Um, the editing's pretty rough too. Yes. So, it, yeah. it is kind of weirdly ineptly made, you know, it's, it's not great, but, but that lends itself to, it being almost more powerful because I can't remember. It's not polished. Right. Exactly. I, I think it was John Landis in a documentary. My friend John always talks about this and I think he's referring to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre that you watch it and you're twice as scared because it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie. It feels like you're watching the work of maniacs with cameras. And that's what Last House on the Left feels like a lot of the times, especially in its darker moments. It's like, oh, this is as close to a snuff film as I've ever seen. And that lends itself power because it is kind of inept at times um, and unpolished, as you said. It, it creates an aesthetic that is even more unsettling than it would be. And that, you know, we can get into the remake or we can bounce back and forth. One of the things that I think works against the remake is that it is very slick and very polished. And that to me is at odds with the subject matter. Yeah. I mean, I, but I, I, I don't know that I would have, I don't know that the sort of the gritty documentary style would have worked with today's audiences. Probably not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think, and I think if they had tried to ape that style, I think then the, then you know they would have been sort of you know it's kind of like the the psycho ninety eight sort of syndrome where like then they'd have been like, well, why are you even remaking this if you're basically just making the same movie and well, this is what so, the, the the remaking the kind of brutal horror of the seventies was very popular in the early two thousands, and they all took the same approach they all kind of turned it into a music video, and the only time I saw it work was with. Alex Aja and the Hills have eyes. Um, yeah. Cause I'm not really a fan of the Texas chainsaw remake again, for the same reason it takes this very gritty, uh, sort of Im immediacy uh, of the original and it turns it into a, an MTV video. Um, and this is probably not the place for this stupid rant, but, and I, I don't even dislike the last house on the left remake. We did a whole episode on it at corpse club. If you yeah. guys want to go listen to it, uh, we say a lot of positive things about it, but, um, aesthetically, I just think the original has a lot more power 
even though it's much more of a poorly made movie. Yeah, well, and I think also what part of the power is is that especially in 1972, and maybe to somebody who doesn't you know know any of these like it feels like you're watching like unknown actors because most of them were pretty unknown at the time. Right. Um, where, you know, Last House and Love 2009, I'm like, well, I, I know who Monica Potter is. I know who, right. you know, Garrett Dillahunt is. Like, I, so there's like, you can sort of remove yourself a little bit um, from it because you feel like you're watching actors in a movie. Not to say that their performances don't pull you in because they do, but like, you know, I, I know who Sarah Paxton is. Whereas right. when you're watching Last House on the Left, you know, 1972, like, you know, I, I, I didn't know who any of these actors were, yeah. you know, going into it. Yeah. And, and most of them really didn't have, you know, I know um, Sandra Kaselich, I think she might have been doing a little bit of soap opera work at the time. But like, I, I wasn't watching soap operas in the 70s. I wasn't even born yet. Um, you know, and David Hess wasn't, you know, he didn't become Robert England in horror. Um, so it's, it, it's one of those like you can still discover this movie and you may not even know any of the people who are in this. Um, and I think that is also what really uh, like pushes it into this like sort of terror, like dangerous territory where you don't feel like you're watching actors. You feel like you're really watching two women being tortured by like these total, like this tr like psychotic trio of, of like just the worst dregs of humanity. <laughs> well, and it's a testament to the actors. And again, it's because their performances are so unpolished. Um, some of them, like I think Fred Lincoln had come from who plays weasel had come, I believe from the porn world. Um, yes. All come of from porn, all of them, <laughs> almost every actor in this movie was acting under an assumed name. Like nobody <laughs> acted under their real names. Um, and for David Hess, you know, who had been primarily a musician prior to this movie and who did all the music for the movie, this movie ends up kind of defining his acting career because he goes on to play Krug basically in every movie he subsequently does. He's so good as Krug that it's like that's all he can be now. He kind of ends up typecast as this terrifying monster of a man. Um and so he makes House on the Edge of the Park, and he makes Hitchhike, and he makes uh, blah, 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 not Edge of the Axe, the other one, um, the Diodato movie, oh. the name of which I can't remember right now. Oh, 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 jeez. I know what you're saying because I actually looked it up the other night. Um, oh, God. He's got oh, a body count. Um, it's body count. The the okay. Ruggiero Diodato movie, and he's this terrifying guy in all of them because he's so good as Krug that I don't want to say this ruins his acting career, but it definitely because you know Wes Craven uses him again in Swamp Thing in kind of a more comedic role almost, but he's still playing like a psychotic henchman. Um, yeah. It's it's what's funny. Speaking of flashback, because um, David has came to flashback like I think a couple times early on, um, and to be very honest, because of this movie, I didn't want to talk to him. Yeah, I didn't want to be near him um, because that's how convincing he is. And from all accounts that I've heard, he was the sweetest man. He was so nice and so kind and courteous to all of his fans. Um, but because Krug was so ingrained inside of me. I wouldn't like, I seriously would like go to the other side of a room 
because he just <laughs> freaked me out that badly. Um, and I regret that because I'm sure he was a fascinating person to talk to. And I, you know, and I, I feel bad for that, but he was so good at it where I was just like, I don't like this guy is a maniac. I don't want to be near him. Yeah. Like, look at him. <laughs> even <laughs> hearing know? his music, which is very gentle and kind of pretty. Uh, even the music that they use in the movie, you're like, how does the guy who writes and performs this music, how is he also this terrifying guy who's making this girl pee her pants and like raping her? Um, I don't know. And, and, uh, J- J- Jeremy Rain, Rain, who plays yes. Sadie, was supposed to be like a 40 year old woman, but they thought she was so good that she was like 21 she or 20. Really yeah. Good. She's like 21 I or 22 was... when they cast her and they, they thought she was so good that they just used her, even though she was totally the wrong age for the part. Yeah. I, 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 it was interesting, like watching her this, I was like, wow, I really, really, in, I don't want to say enjoyed her performance because that sounds weird. Um, but I was really drawn to her, especially this time around because it's, it is so, you know, there's so much of this feels like, you know, it's very male dominated you know, this narrative, um, and these, you know, I mean, I know there's the, the versions of the movie where Sadie is doing a lot more than we see ultimately in the versions that are out there, um, to these, these girls. Um, but it's just interesting, like how strong she is as a character. And yeah. like, I, if there, if, if a movie had existed specifically about her character before this movie, I would watch that. Yeah. Um, because I think there's an interesting psychological sort of draw to her. Um, and just who she is. And I think it's also really fascinating that she ended up like married to Richard Dreyfus of all people. Yeah, right, right. So, um, go figure. (laughs) She kind of ends up, to me, influencing a certain like punk aesthetic later in the 70s. It was funny because like she she does, and then there's parts of me where I kind of thought was like, you know, if they would have cast her as like Rizzo in Greece. Like I could have seen that too. Like she started. Greece like, would be Rizzo so much scarier, though. <laughs> it really would. <laughs> Just... Like if you, if that's Rizzo, like Jeff Connery would have been like, uh oh, I ain't messing with this. <laughs> like, getting... Get out of my car. Kaniki gets his throat <laughs> slashed. Right. Then we don't even have to worry about the possible pregnancy. No. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh. Uh-uh. No, everybody in Greece uh, is ending up dead. Yeah, them floating away in the car is just basically them all going to heaven at the end of the movie because <laughs> Rizzo's killed them all violently. I'm sure you I saw this. I that movie, though. Oh, I'm, I hope to make that movie. Um, I'm sure you saw this already, <laughs> but in the 80s, they were trying to make a sequel to Last House on the Left. And did you, did you see who was supposed to write and direct this sequel? No, I did not. My boy, Danny Steinman. Really? Is there a more perfect choice to write and direct a sequel? I, I mean, it would have been closer like... to chaos than what Wes Craven did, because it would have been uh, all of the sleaze and nastiness with none of the uh, sort of moral center. But it makes perfect uh, sense that that's who they wanted to make a, a Last House on the Left sequel. Uh, <laughs> is perfect the word really to use for this? The mind reels at what that movie would have looked like. And again, what I what guess. it would have been like it all happens again, right? Because there's no story to tell. Yeah. The characters are largely dead from the original film. Uh, yeah. Do you really follow what happens to the parents? Do, I mean, maybe you say they become 
almost like a Paul Kersey and Death Wish kind of a thing where like they become vigilantes and they start murdering people uh, who are who they deem to be bad. My guess is it would have been basically just Last House on the Left Redux and, hey, similar exactly. events happen again. Um, I, if anybody knows anything about what that movie was supposed to be, if there were any early drafts or anything, please let us know because... Uh, I, I would be curious to see what that was supposed to be, but I, I would guess it's probably the latter more than the former on that. That would be um, my guess, too. Uh, yeah. Maybe things were a little different in the early 70s. We're used to... So a lot of booby talk at the beginning of the movie. Like, I don't know. When I was a teenage girl, I was Talk about Mary's boobies, my... are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, she's like, her dad's like, I can see your nipples. And I was like, whoa, dad, calm down. Like, hold on here. Well, it's and a... Then, like, it's a dangerous it's a thing. Time. Yeah, but it goes out of the way to sort of make Mary kind of sexually liberated, right? Kind of a burn your bra, like post-60s... Uh, feminist. But then, and then, but then also, like, she's talking to Phyllis, and she's like, I just got my boobs. I'm like, you're 17. You didn't yeah. have boobs before this? Like, what's going on with, you know, I don't know. Like, I think most girls, like, you end up, it's that, that humiliation, like, you're in junior high, and you have to start wearing a bra. Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, God, no, this, you know, it's like, you're 17. What? Okay. I don't know. It's just, it was weird, but it was, you know, I get it. You know, she's she's becoming a woman. She's blossoming. And this is her first real taste of freedom in the big city. Um, but this just shows you, kids, you got to be careful where you go get your you go get your grass from. Because you <laughs> well, don't want to die from anybody on the streets. I don't think she's, you know, I think that has more to do with, again, Wes Craven talking about how she's becoming a woman, more in keeping with what Bergman was doing in The Virgin Spring. Because I don't think he's the kind of filmmaker who would then go out of his way to punish her for being kind of a post-60s sexually liberated young woman. Um, although I think you could read the movie that way. I think you could. Yeah. I, I was going to say there are, there's, I would definitely, if somebody had that interpretation, I wouldn't say they're wrong. Does that subconsciously come out of the conservative conservatism of Wes Craven's background? Is that the influence of Sean Cunningham? Because look at what happens in the entire Friday, the 13th series. Um, or is it just, is that an unfair reading of the film? I don't know. Or, or maybe it was just sort of society's reading of like sort of this post Woodstock era era of era of, of liberation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm most people don't know this about me, but I'm like super obsessed with like Woodstock documentaries. I don't know why I just really am. You're talking um, about Woodstock 99 though, right? No, I'm talking about the original Woodstock. Um, You're Brian with was the at green... one of the Woodstocks, actually, which is kind of funny. Wow. Um, yeah, the one the, the one that ended up being total chaos. Okay. Um, and you know, overturned toilets and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no Woodstock '69. I was. I think it's a really fascinating picture of sort of the dichotomy of our country, and I think it's actually kind of relevant to what we're dealing with today, where you have sort of, you know, you have part of the world like you know having like all these people being shipped off to go fight in this war you know that arguably did we even belong there and then you have these kids at home who are sort of trying to fight for their freedoms and sort of trying to embrace you know peace not war um and again i think that's 
I think in, in some ways this movie is that because you have Phyllis and Mary who are very freewheeling, you know, they're the embodiment of quote unquote good, you know, they're, they're coming into their own, they're on the precipice of adulthood. Um, and they're, they're ex- like sort of exploring their own freedoms. Um, and then along comes Krug and his gang and basically is like, no, like you can't, you know, you can go and not wear your bra and want to, you know, go to concerts and go eat ice cream and all this stuff. But like, ultimately the, this is going to find you and it's going to catch up to you. Um, so I, if somebody were to say like, I, I, I think there's a lot of interpretations of this movie, but I guess that's sort of the power and sort of the, what makes it, you know, a valid piece of art. Cause I know when it came out, nobody thought this was, you know, a movie, let alone a movie worth discussing. Um, but I think time has proved them wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it gets written off as being kind of this snuff film and obviously it has a, a higher estimation amongst horror fans um, because I don't think Wes Craven ever made a movie that wasn't thoughtful. I think some of his movies are more thoughtful than others. And I think it's easier to uh, discern the thoughtfulness. Like I haven't seen it in a long time. I know you're a fan saying that out loud. Like he never made a movie that wasn't thoughtful. I'm like, no. oh, was Vampire in Brooklyn thoughtful? Maybe. I haven't seen it in a long time. I think it was. I may have a I harder time was. making a case for how we'll get to it. But um, was Swamp Thing thoughtful? Like, maybe. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. So we'll get to that, too. And maybe I'll end up eating these words. But I just, I think it's very easy to see this movie, to be put off by this movie, to be repelled by this movie, and to reject it without actually considering the thoughtfulness behind it and what Wes Craven is going for. Because again, I watched chaos. I've seen the version of this movie made by assholes and Wes Craven was not an asshole. Wes Craven was a very thoughtful, empathetic filmmaker, uh, even at this young age. And I think this is a thoughtful, empathetic movie that happens to also be very ugly and hard to watch at times. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, if I were to invite somebody over and be like, hey, let's watch some Wes Craven movies, I, this is probably not one I would no? show. Because, <laughs> you know. Um, you don't just start again, right at the beginning? No, you don't. I, don't. I mean, you know, I think you start at Nightmare. Or, you know, <laughs> a sober loop, a stone shocker. And be like, look, he tried to do it again. Um, you know, it's. But that being said, like, I, I, I'm really glad I rewatched this movie because, I, again, I can't even believe I'm saying this because, like, it's 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 such a nasty movie at times um but because it's nasty that doesn't mean it's not relevant that doesn't mean it's not important um and i think going through this and rewatching again and really seeing it sort of through this lens of who i am now versus who i was when i was 18 um makes all the difference yeah um you know because it was just sheer horror for me seeing it in high school versus now seeing it and there is still that that horror that comes with it but there's you know there's something oddly beautiful about it at times um and for as you know as clunky as it can be and as you know at odds with itself as it can be at times um you can see the 
the start of something really great in, in Wes Craven as a, as a, a, a filmmaker here. Um, and I'm glad it exists. Um, it's, I think there was some, you know, I think the early seventies, I think there needed to be this kind of a wake up call. Um, and I'm, it's, I'm glad it was Wes, you know, I mean, I think that one, two punch of this movie and then Texas Chainsaw, like what, what a hell of a time to be like a movie goer. Yeah. Like I couldn't even imagine, you know, especially cause like, if you think about like where, where movie fans were in like 1960 to find sh- psycho as shocking as it was like, and it was shocking for the, vi- like the violence, but like it was shocking cause it showed a toilet. <laughs> so you're talking 12 years removed from being able to show a toilet in a movie and then you give them this movie. Yeah. Like I couldn't even have imagined, you know, and then uh, on, and also, you know, like the next you have exorcist as well. So, you know, it's, it's like, I, you know, I love 1980s horror and obviously, you know, there's amazing things that were happening in the genre at that time. <laughs> um, but I think as I've gotten older, I've really come into the appreciation for what the 1970s did um, because it really laid this interesting framework of stories um, and really push things that, again, we were seeing an evolution of, of horror in the eighties, but there's so much work that was done in the seventies. Um, you know, and you look at this movie and you see the way that violence, you know, would get, you know, pushed in certain genres of the eighties, but then ultimately we'd see it kind of circle back around, you know, in the late nineties and two thousands. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, again, watching it again, I was like, wow, this movie has wholly influenced, like, countless movies, you know, that we, you know, consider classics. Um, and again, I don't think people talk about it a lot. You know, when we talk about Wes, like when you and I talk about Wes, like, we talk about the Nightmare movies, we talk about the yeah. Scream movies. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a movie, you know, again, it's not something I would sit down and throw it on for a crowd of people to watch. But I think it's it's one of those movies that definitely should be part of the conversation more because, you know, you're looking at it now and looking to where Wes went in his career. It it's it's a really pivotal film for him and I think for horror in general. Yeah. Well, not only did it give us the careers of Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham, you know, but it uh, as you pointed out, it there's a lot of threads of Wes Craven that we'll see over the course of doing this series that all start here. Yeah. Also, I, it's so funny. I completely forgot that Martin Cove was in this movie. Me too. I was like, wait a second. And I was like, I was watching it and I was like, Oh my God. I was like, there's sensei like just sitting there, <laughs> and, you know, with being, being the deputy and stuff. And I was just like, I totally forgot that he was in this. Uh, so that was sort of a fun little like like aha moment for me, um, but yeah, this was pretty early on in his career too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, really, all the stuff with the cops probably could have been cut. Yeah, I mean it's a short movie already. I don't know that I needed it. Right, it's a short movie already, so it probably would have been cut to just over an hour without the stuff with the cops. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think it helps the movie at all. And it, again, it just shifts the tone every time they're on screen um, in a way that's uncomfortable and, and ultimately contributes to this weird thing that last house on the left now is, uh, but it might have been a more consistent film without them. Yeah. Although I think it's interesting though, because like the, the, you have the finale with 
you know, the cops coming into the house and, and seeing Mary's parents and, and what has happened in their house. Um, and I think it's a sort of interesting way of like, suddenly the cops become the audience because they've just walked into this. Right. And they're like, I don't need, like, the look on the cop's face is kind of like how you most of us feel when you're like sort of at the end of this movie where you're like, what the hell is all this? <laughs> like, what just happened here? Yeah. Um, and I think in a way that's sort of a valid thing. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I mean, if there's anything I would do, if there's any way to sort of tonally shift those those scenes, I don't know that I mind them, but they do sort of take away from the 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 punishing nature of the rest of the film. And that's like when I was talking about like the movie sort of at, is at odds with each other at certain times. That's that's part of it. And maybe that's the function. Maybe he thought like, hey, the audience needs some respite. So let's have these wacky cops, you know, kind of joking around um, to give them a little bit of a break from the ugliness of the rest of the movie. I don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, if we if we were living in a perfect world, like we could pick Wes's brains about it now. Right. Um, and I know there was a documentary that was made a few years ago. I, I've never sat down to watch it. Um, but I would be curious. Is, was that on the Arrow release also? Yeah, there's a. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but there is a documentary on there. Okay, because I would, I would be interested in that. Um, yeah, when this came out on Arrow, I was like, I was tempted because I'm a completist. But I was like, yeah. when am I going to sit down and watch this for fun? Right. Um, but it does, you know... Now that I know that there's all these different versions and I am curious about the doc, like maybe it's something I should pick up. I don't know. Maybe I'll just throw it onto my Amazon wish list and just stare at it all every go. once in a while. And maybe, maybe if it gets like on, like goes down on price or something one day, I'll pick it up. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's funny how you mentioned sort of the conservatism of Sean Cunningham and how that sort of played into the Friday movies because it was one of those, like, because I was thinking about it, because, like, I mentioned to you how I needed a palate cleanser after this, so I turned on Halloween, which ultimately, like, you know, Carpenter has gone on on record saying, like, you know, it wasn't his intention to punish characters in his movie for, right. quote-unquote, bad behavior. Right. Um, and, yeah, this movie very much does that. Um, so it's interesting, because you think of that, like, that was sort of, you know, we called it, like, you know, sort of the rules of horror, so to speak, uh, to... to, to you know, borrow from Randy and scream, but like, it's really the rules of Cunningham when you think about it. Right. Um, you know, so I guess that's, that was probably his greatest gift to the horror genres. And he <laughs> sort of made these rules that everybody had to follow. Um, and I guess maybe I appreciate it more when they, when they don't follow those rules. I don't know, but I love the Friday movie. So I don't know. I'm a walking uh, conundrum. You I'm, really I'm are. at war with myself. <laughs> what, um, movies are you kind of most excited to revisit as part of this new venture um one you mentioned vampire in brooklyn because i have been a long time fan of that movie so i'm excited to get to say my piece on it um because i've been long defending it um for for decades now i just pre-ordered um, the blu-ray Nice, nice, nice. I know, yeah, there's a new Blu-ray coming, so... That, Ten bucks cool. on Amazon, so... Yeah, yeah, I know, of course. I, I wish somebody, like, a boutique company, like, picked it up and would do something nice with it, but, like, I know from stories from special effects artists who worked on it, there was a lot of issues on that film. Um, on an I, Eddie I Murphy Eddie movie? Was, yeah, I think he was just in a weird place at that point. Um, I don't, I don't, 
I, I don't get down on Eddie Murphy because, I mean, he stuck it to John Landis. So for that, he always has my uh, <laughs> eternal gratefulness because I, I know John was mad at him because he didn't go and support him during his trial. Right. For when he murdered three people, but whatever. Um, so I, when I realized that, I was like, oh, okay, Eddie Murphy's kind of cool. Um, except that I've always loved Eddie. Um, so, I like yeah, him too. I'm, I'm I just really know excited. he can be difficult. Oh, yeah. And I think also he sort of ended up getting kind of sucked into this whole uh, run of movies where he was under prosthetics because he was so good at it. Right. Um, But it made him miserable. It just made him miserable. And who wouldn't be miserable underneath all of that stuff all the time and having people like poke and prod at you and everything like that. Um, I forget who it was, but somebody had to do like a test makeup on him for Norbit. And then basically he came in and he was and it's like it was like a two out two and a half hour makeup test. And he said, you have 40 minutes. And, <laughs> you know, because at that point, he, he was just done with, like, sitting in chairs for hours and hours and hours, you know. Um, he seems like he had a little bit of energy to him. And so I think just sitting there just really, you know, kind of was not what he enjoyed about the process. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Vampire in Brooklyn. So I'm, I'm excited to sort of be able to uh, talk about that a little bit more. You know, I honestly, I haven't seen Swamp Thing since I was a kid. Um, so I'm kind of excited for that one, too. Deadly Friend, I haven't seen since I was a kid. Um, so I'm excited for that. Uh, I'm always excited to talk any any nightmare movies, of course. Um, I might be a little excited about the Scream movies. Who knows? Do we go <laughs> any music of the heart, I guess, is the real question here. I've never, I think we should. I've never seen it. That's, I think, the one uh, that I've never seen. Well, there you go. Um yeah, I I remember renting it with my mom. And then, you know, then afterwards she was like, wait, that's the guy who did Nightmare? I was like, yeah. I was like, you know, they could do other things. Before, <laughs> you know, um, I remember liking that movie. But it's again, it's been like almost 20 years since I've seen it. So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think overall I'm just I'm excited for all of it. I'm excited to check out. Time, maybe not the Hills Have Eyes Part 2. <laughs> well, so I've only seen that once, and I remember there being like a dog flashback, so I'm kind of weirdly excited for that. But I'm I'm excited to check out um, Invitation to Hell because I've never seen it. It's a TV movie that he made in 1984 with Susan Lucci. Yes, and I know Erica will be excited about that because she's a big Susan Lucci fan. Um, so, did that recently get a Blu-ray? I feel like it did. Summer it? of Fear did. I don't think Invitation to Hell did. Oh, okay. Summer of Fear was his other TV movie from 1978. Um, with Linda Blair, right? With Linda Blair, yeah. That has a Blu-ray, but nothing. Hopefully there's one for Invitation to Hell by the time we get to it. We got a little while. All right. So, Universe, make that happen. He had three movies come out in 1984. He had that TV movie, he had Hills Have Eyes Part Two, and then he had Nightmare on Elm Street. One of them did better than the others. <laughs> hmm, I wonder which. <laughs> <laughs> he made a movie in 1975, which would technically be next, called The Fireworks Woman, where he's credited as Abe Snake. Ooh, sounds sexy. Uh, I don't know what that is. is I that don't terrible? either, and I'm guessing it has something to do with porn. I don't know for sure. So we will be skipping it, and we will be going right to last... The hills have let's, eyes. Let's let's yeah. This is rated X, and okay. it's about uh, siblings who 
have uh, been attracted to each other since they were kids, but the <laughs> brother is starting to become a priest. So, oh Wes, I I don't know that it's uh, I don't know that it's streaming anywhere. So I'm guessing hmm. it's not. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. If I find so it, I'll that... send it to you. Okay. Um, oh, actually, you know what? Hold on a second. Because I, I do like to, the streamings. Check your Pornhub account. Uh, it's, it's actually on MUBI. M-U-B-I. Really? It is. Well, then maybe we should do it next. All right. Uh, wow. It's, it's, it's labeled under horror, drama, and erotica. Okay. All right. So I guess things are going to go a little incestuous on the next episode <laughs> of Craven Craven. So... Yeah, look forward to that, kids. You I'm know, yeah, bring this, the kids. It's for the family. Is this uh, an R-rated cut, or is this the full X-rated version? Oh, I you don't know, know what? It's not on movie. It oh, was damn on it! Movie. Hold on. This is very exciting for our listeners. It is. They're they're like, wow, you guys are really prepared and working these things out, <laughs> figuring this out in real time. Well, I just assumed because I was unaware of the fireworks woman. I assumed the hills have eyes would be our next movie which you know to me is kind of last house on the left slightly more commercial um but i guess it's not really more commercial because it's pretty much as ugly and rapey as the hills or as last house on the left but i haven't, I haven't seen it in a few years so um i'm looking forward to checking it out again but so i didn't know the fireworks woman existed until we were talking and now i'm like well should we be covering this next but if it's one of his porn movies i don't think we really need to i mean it's like it seems like art house porn okay so so like a bird i don't know movie. i'll look into it and see what we can find. yeah basically <laughs> so this is this is really craven doing bergman i guess yeah um yeah we'll work it out maybe maybe we'll do this with last uh with the hills have eyes and okay. then you know, we'll we'll see. We'll work it out. I'm sure everybody listening at home is like, guys, really? You gotta, you know, you're talking about this on the show. Thanks. But this is this is how the magic happens, kids. This yes. Is how it all comes together. Yes. Um. So yeah, thank you guys very much for listening. Hopefully, you'll check these out. The plan is to do these, I think, one a month. Um. We have a Twitter account that we're going to be launching, and that is Craven Craven Pod. Uh, so you can follow us there, and we'll tweet stuff out. I don't really know what that Twitter account is going to look like yet. This is all very new, so bear with us as we figure this out. But it's uh, it's going to be really fun, and who knows if it goes well and we have a good time, what'll be next? You know, we'll do uh, Danny Steinman. Oh God! <laughs> standing, just, standing for Steinman. <laughs> Oh, we could. Do, oh, you know what you do is we could do uh, one for Toby Hooper and call "Hanging with Mr. Hooper." Oh, very. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been that would have been perfect up. if we did do "That's So Craven" for this one. Yeah, because then yes, every... but we also threw around "That's So Craven," but right. I think some people have sort of done that sort of with their social media handles and such. So we didn't want to step on any toes, right. um, but uh hanging with Mr. Hooper sounds pretty fun to me. <laughs> because then every <laughs> mini series just becomes a riff on a sitcom. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what the carpenter one would be. Uh, we'll think of it. Oh man. Or somebody more clever we'll than us. It. We'll leave it in the comments. So yeah. You know what we need on this is risky. Yes. He's good at these kinds of things. 
He stopped listening as soon as we brought up Kevin Gage because he's terrified of Kevin Gage. (laughs) He's coming to get you. (laughs) He turned this off as soon as he heard. Because now I've said it twice, and if I say it a third time, he appears. And I think that's how it works. He does. He's even more powerful than Candyman. (laughs) It only takes three mentions and he shows up. Um, Well, this was super duper fun. I'm really glad we got to do this. Yes. Thank you for for doing this with me. And thank you for coming up with this idea. I'm excited for this project. Yes, me too. And like I said, there's no nobody else I'd rather do. Like, I mean, maybe we bring in people every now and again, but I don't know. I I like this. This is fun. It is. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, thank you guys very much for listening. Uh, And uh, we will see you next time for a discussion of The Hills Have Eyes. I guess that's it. All right. All right.